There you go. Thank you. All right. And thank you. All right. Well, I'm not going to start all that over except to tell you that this is highly interactive today and we would like your participation as well. Um, let me be brief about the introduction since we have three people. Um, uh, Meredith went to the College of William and Mary and then to Wake Forest for her MD degree. And we were delighted that you chose to come here for your internship, residency, chief residency, and training in palliative medicine, and then stayed with us as a, an integral member of the hospitalist team and in palliative medicine, where you've shown yourself to be an outstanding clinician and also a fantastic teacher, and in uh, teaching in many roles, both to the undergraduates and our, our residents in areas like the sub-I, areas of uh, ward attending, areas of the palliative medicine rotations, um, and we thank you for that. You've been the recipient numerous times of the teaching awards from the Department of Medicine, and I know that you were also nominated last year by the Geisel class as one of its distinguished small group leaders. So uh, you will, we will all be treated to Meredith's ability to teach today, and that's, uh, and that's fantastic. You're an assistant professor with us, and you work both on the hospitalist team and palliative medicine. She'll be joined by uh, uh, Peggy Plunkett, who is an advanced registered nurse practitioner and psychiatric liaison clinical nurse specialist and wonderful clinician and teacher in your own right. Um, you're, uh, you went to the University of Minnesota, where you got your BA in anthropology, and was also at the University of Minnesota getting your BSN in nursing. Off to Yale for your advanced training. Uh, I happen to have seen, and we just discussed, that Yale had a program recently of the 90 nurses in 90 years that they were profiling, and Peggy was chosen from her year of graduation to be the uh, person of the year of that year to uh, have her life story understood, and, uh, and it was, it's a great distinguished honor. Um, you're well published in ethics and also in the professionalism of nursing, uh, issues around stress and dealing with crisis, and uh, for that we are so delighted that you're here at Dartmouth. In addition, you've been very involved in community education, and most recently in working on projects of advanced directives, so all of these things so intensely important. And the, the other member of the panel uh, will be Tim Leahy. Uh, Tim known to all of us, but what you may not know is that he got his undergraduate degree from Georgetown, he got his MD at Duke, he got his master's at Harvard, and he did his uh, fellowship training in the Harvard programs at Beth Israel and at Mass General Hospital. Uh, we landed him here, and he has become an associate professor of medicine, integral person on the bioethics committees, uh, well-funded uh, through his career in areas of his interest in uh, microbiology and, and various areas of infectious disease. And currently, as you know, he is our dean's right-hand person as the project leader of the curriculum redesign, an area of which I'm sure he was excited initially and now the daggers are flying, but, uh, but Tim is the guy who can get this done, and thank you for all the work that you're doing with that. It's so important to our uh, Department of Medicine. Um, I abbreviated much that I could tell you about these three fantastic individuals. I'll let you show what they're going to do with us today. So Meredith, I'll let you start it out. Thank you. Can everyone hear me? Yes. Okay. So thanks to everyone here for winding your way through the basement corridors uh, to show up. And for those of you joining remotely, I'm really pleased to be here um, to present to you my first grand rounds on such a straightforward and non-controversial topic. <laughs> um, and I'm especially really pleased to see so many um, representatives from non-physician fields. I see a lot of nurses and social workers, and I'm just really pleased to have such a diverse group to talk to you today. Um, our learning objectives for today are going to be to um, think about the history and the ethics of physician-assisted dying legislation and to understand the current law um, in Vermont to reflect on our own personal feelings about physician-assisted dying, to feel more prepared to respond to patient requests, and then to do a little bit of discussion about the ethics and implication of physician-assisted dying for our patients and our institution. I have no disclosures to make. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, and just to sort of give you a sense of um, how we're going to go through this, we'll talk a little bit about what the purpose of these laws are, essentially what they're trying to accomplish. We'll talk a little bit of what the experience has been like in places where this is legal, so essentially what these laws have accomplished. We'll talk about what's going on in Vermont, and then we'll talk about some strategies to respond to our patients who may ask us about this. So just to start out, um, I wanted to reflect a little bit on the language that we use. This is sort of a hot topic, and I think language matters. And so the probably more common term used to describe this phenomenon is physician-assisted suicide, and I'm intentionally not using, uh, not used that phrase here. Um, because th I think there is a difference between um, suicide and, um, and this phenomenon. And the American Psychological Association agrees and basically feels that um, people who end their lives because of some uncontrolled mental illness, those are fundamentally different circumstances than the patients that we're going to be talking about who are people with a progressive illness who have chosen to um, hasten their death, essentially. Um, and the legislation in Washington and Oregon explicitly states, in fact, that these deaths are not considered suicides, that these are considered sort of natural deaths for the purpose of reporting. Um, just a word about euthanasia. So euthanasia is often sort of lumped together with this phenomenon. Physician-assisted dying is the act of a physician writing a prescription that a patient self-administers with the intent of hastening their death. Euthanasia is the act of a physician actually giving that medication. And it seems like sort of a fine distinction, but this is actually an important one. Um, I think probably morally and ethically, but also legally, this is an important distinction to make. Um, and then death with dignity is a phrase that's often used by proponents of this legislation. And that's actually embedded in the names of the act in Washington, Oregon. They are called, in fact, the Death with Dignity Act. Um, I have preferred not to use this term because I think it sort of implies that this is the only way you can have a death with dignity, which I think is, um, is actually untrue, and so I've chosen not to use that language. So we'll be, um, I'll be referring to it as physician-assisted dying or PAD to be a little more brief on the slides. Um, I do acknowledge this is a, a sensitive topic and one in which people often have very strong views either for or against. Um, I think a lot of us probably are neutral um, or undecided, but, but this is a, a sort of hot topic and um, probably has been debated for as long as there's been any sort of formal medical profession, which is um, a long time indeed. And there are a lot of arguments against it. Um, a lot of people feel really compelled by the Hippocratic Oath, which um, I think most of us physicians have taken in one translation or another at some point in our medical careers, which basically enjoins us not to prescribe any lethal medication. Um, certainly there are biblical commandments that people feel apply to this, um, to this particular situation, thou shalt not kill. And for many people, that's just sort of a hard moral line that they feel that they can't cross. So there's some concern that's been expressed um, about vulnerable populations and how this legislation might affect these sorts of, um, these sorts of patients. In particular, um, the very elderly who may not be able to advocate effectively for themselves, people with significant disabilities, um, and people who um, have low socioeconomic status who may be vulnerable to, um, to what people perceive as exploitation. There's a lot of worry about that, as well as um, the fact that um, this, these sorts of laws may represent a slippery slope towards euthanasia. So again, this is that sort of distinction between patients taking the medication and us giving it, and people feel like this is maybe the beginning of a, a trajectory towards that. Um, the arguments against um, physician-assisted dying laws essentially um, come down to prioritizing our sense of personal integrity over other ethical principles like patient autonomy, and, and that's sort of the fundamental argument, I think, at the, at the heart of it. Arguments for legalizing um, physician-assisted dying um, really view this act as an act of compassion that really represents patient choice and fulfills the principle of non-abandonment of our patients. And when patients ask us for this, they feel strongly that they want their doctor to be part of this. And, um, and that's part of their argument. Essentially, it prioritizes the principle of patient autonomy and choice over other ethical principles. So um, I just want to get a sense of those of us in the audience. Um, so go ahead and, and answer whether or not you have ever been asked for a patient 
for help in hastening death. So this is really interesting. Um, this is a, a pretty high percentage, actually. When you look at, um, at data, and there's not a ton of data out there about how many um, physicians have been asked, um, but, but there is a fair amount. And, and the data that's reported ranges anywhere from a low estimate of about 12% of physicians who've been asked for help up to a high of about 30%. And so this is actually quite a lot higher. And I'm wondering if it reflects some of our non-physician um, uh, practitioners who are here with us because actually nurses and social workers tend to report much higher levels of being asked um, by patients. And so, um, so I think this is just really, um, it's just an interesting phenomenon. So, um, so let's talk a little more about the arguments for why people think physician-assisted dying should be made legal. Um, primarily, we hear from patients who express concerns about what they feel is a poor quality of life and a desire for what they call a good quality of death. Um, we know that these requests for hastened death are relatively common, looking particularly in the cancer literature. This is not at all an uncommon phenomenon. And as we see, half of us sitting here in the audience have been asked at some point or another. So statistically speaking, it's something that's going to come up for many of us in our practice. Some people feel that um, arguments for making this legal is that it would provide improved regulation and reporting on a practice that we know is done secretively now. Um, there are a couple of studies um, looking at people who have been asked for help in hastening dying and then asking whether or not people have actually given that help either by writing a prescription um, that they know would be lethal and, and with that intent or by direct euthanasia. Um, there's one study that was done um, out at the University of Washington that showed um, some, it was less than 10%, but not much less than 10% of physicians had actually done this. And more recently, there's a New England Journal article that surveyed about um, 1,900 physicians. And out of that 1,900 physician group, um, uh, more than 60 actually had written a prescription or, or had given an injection with the specific intent of hastening a person's death. So this is something, it's not done commonly, but it happens. And some people feel like if this is going to happen, um, why not make it legal and make it safe and create a standard of care and create a system of reporting so that we can really understand what this looks like, who's getting it, and how it can be done. Um, I think finally, and, and probably the argument that many of us are, are most familiar with, is the increasing prominence of patient autonomy as a really guiding principle in our medical care. And this has sort of been a spectrum starting back in the 60s and 70s with um, some seminal court cases, primarily the Karen Ann Quinlis case, um, Nancy Cruzan, which were essentially right-to-die cases, or that's how they were sort of billed um, in much of the lay press. Um, things like the Patient Self-Determination Act, the increasing prominence of advanced directives. Um, and so this is viewed by many as part of just a spectrum of, um, of this guiding principle becoming more and more prominent, both in the medical system, but also in the lay public in the sense of what our patients want and expect from us. So let's talk a little more about what poor quality of life means. So quality of life, of course, is a highly subjective and variable <coughs> descriptor. Um, what's quality of life for me may certainly not mean quality of life for another. Um, I think a nice way to think of it is a loss of the ability to perform the activities that gave a person's life meaning and were an integral part of one's sense of identity. What makes you, you, and what makes your life worth living? Um, People identify things like unbearable suffering, which is a very broad term, and the ways in which a person can suffer um, never cease to amaze me in their diversity and intensity, but it's a broad term. Um, the sense of dependency, the sense of being a burden, loss of self, or fear of any of these things happening. And um, likewise, current and, and fear of future physical pain and suffering, these are all contributors to what patients identify as a poor quality of life. And I think the fear of future suffering is a really powerful motivator. We hear over and over again, people tell us stories of their aunt dying from cancer and it was awful and she suffered so and I'm terrified that's gonna happen to me. 
It's a really strong motivator for a lot of our patients. A little more about poor quality of life and how it relates specifically to the desire for hasten death. Um, in some studies looking at cancer patients in particular, the desire for hasten death was really associated with physical distress, with depression often, a sense of hopelessness, low social support, and impaired spiritual well-being, um, which I recognize is not a dimension many of us are used to thinking about, but is really important for many of our patients. Um, I'll add that the desire for haste and death doesn't necessarily mean that these patients are actively suicidal, that they're particularly interested in physician-assisted dying, or that they're appropriate candidates, but these are the people who come to us and say, I'm really thinking I just want this to be over. Can't we do something to just get this over with? Um, another study really identified um, despair as the strongest motivator towards um, patients asking for help hastening their death. And in that particular study, it's interesting, despair um, was sort of the, the full manifestation of a sense of hopelessness but was often pretty transient and related to periods of physical suffering. And when the physical suffering was really fully addressed, that sense of despair was really relieved. So again, these aren't necessarily patients who are appropriate candidates, but this is, these are sort of the characteristics of people who are asking us for help with this. Um, and so thinking about a good quality of death, we have this sort of um, mythical entity of a good death, and everybody wants to have a good death. But what does that really mean? Just like quality of life, I think it really varies between people. For some people, really important to be at home. Other people are totally uninterested in being at home and would like to be here in the ICU. Thank you very much. So, um, so really, it's about the right to choose and desire for autonomy for many, many people. And we hear over and over again, the people who are interested in, um, in physician-assisted dying are people for whom control over their life and environment is a deep and sort of fixed personality trait. These are people for whom loss of control is incredibly difficult to tolerate. The control of their world is sort of at the core of their being. And this is um, often the dying process feels fundamentally uncontrollable. And so this, for them, represents a way to regain that. Um, Cancer patients have described the, uh, the desire for physician-assisted dying as sort of a hypothetical exit plan, sort of a safety policy or insurance policy to say, well, I don't think I want to do it right now, but if things got really bad, I'd want to have a way out. And, and that feels like a security for them, a security measure. Later in the dying process, as people are coming much closer to the end of their life, people see hastening death as sort of a manifestation of letting go. They've, they've done what they need to do to sort of gain a sense of life completion and closure. They've seen the people they need to see. They've said what they need to say. And now they're just ready to move on and ready to have that experience be over with. Um, really interestingly, one of the factors identified in a good quality of death is having their physicians involved with that actual experience and event. They see us as experts in symptom management, in them. We know them. We've walked through the journey of their cancer, their heart failure, their COPD with them. And they want us to be part of that final chapter for them. And, and many people see the act of a physician writing a prescription to hasten their life as sort of the full manifestation of that doctor-patient relationship. So let's look at um, what the experience has been like in places where this is actually legal. So what do these laws actually mean for patients? <laughs> Probably worldwide, the place with the greatest experience in this topic is the Netherlands, where um, physician-assisted dying is, as best I can tell in the literature, looks to be pretty well accepted in Dutch medical practice. It's been practiced fairly openly for 20 to 30 years, was only re fairly recently made formally legal. But physicians have been doing this for quite a long time without um, prosecution as long as sort of certain conditions were met and they were documenting everything appropriately. Um, looking sort of worldwide, the Netherlands is a place where this is done most frequently, not only the longest, but most frequently. In 2011, um, almost 3,700 people died um, using either physician-assisted dying or euthanasia, where, um, which is legal in the Netherlands. Um, and the Netherlands actually has the highest percentage of all deaths who, that are um, done under this, this act. Almost 3% of all deaths in the Netherlands are as a result of physician-assisted dying or euthanasia. 
Um, and when you look specifically at cancer patients, cancer is the most common diagnosis for patients who take advantage of this. Um, but it's almost 8% of cancer deaths in the Netherlands are, um, are patients who have taken advantage of this. Um, Belgium and Luxembourg also have legalized this more recently. There's not as much data out there about it, but their statutes are um, very, very similar to the Netherlands. Um, and it looks like, from what information is out there, the practice patterns tend to be um, also very similar. Um, elsewhere in Europe, Switzerland, um, it's physician-assisted dying is legal in Switzerland, but it was made legal by a court decision, actually, not by any sort of law being passed. And in Switzerland, assisting suicide, um, suicide is their term, um, is legal not only for residents, but also for foreigners. And so among European countries, Switzerland is actually a destination for this. Uh, there's a number of cases um, in the UK in particular of people who have progressive illness. I think that most of them have our progressive neurological disease. There have been a couple patients with severe MS um, and progressive Alzheimer's dementia who have traveled to Switzerland and taken advantage of the fact that this is legal and there's um, sort of an organization that helps coordinate that for people who want to take advantage of it to sort of help them with that process of getting from one country to another and then dying in a foreign country. In Switzerland, um, euthanasia is not legal. That was not covered in the court decision. And there's no reporting mandated. So it's a little bit hard to get a handle on how many um, foreigners are taking advantage of this and what their numbers really look like. So closer to home, um, Montana actually has um, the possibility of physician-assisted dying as legal. This was made legal by a court decision, um, which was known as the Baxter decision. And this was actually a, a court case brought forward by four physicians, um, by the nonprofit group Compassion and Choices, which is a sort of physician-assisted dying advocacy group, um, on behalf of a patient whose last name was Baxter, who had lymphocytic leukemia and who wanted to, um, to hasten his death with the use of a lethal prescription. Um, and the Supreme Court of Montana agreed, essentially, that there was no um, legal reason why this could not be done. And so this was not a court decision saying, yes, this is legal, or we should do it, but essentially a court decision saying it's not illegal. And so it's been practiced there, but no formal reporting system, and we don't have a great handle on the demographics of either patients or providers who are participating in this. Interestingly, New Mexico had a very similar situation just a couple of weeks ago, um, where a patient um, with lung cancer, which is actually now in remission, um, filed a suit to say, I want to have this opportunity if I ever need it. I don't need it now, but I want to have that, that available. And the court agreed, and so that's um, obviously in pretty heavy litigation and appeal at the moment. So it's not clear that that's all going to settle out. I think the best example, or at least the, long, the most longstanding example here in the United States is that of Oregon. And um, the Death with Dignity Act was passed in Oregon in 1997 and went into effect in 1998. They have meticulous reporting that is freely available on their public health website. It's fascinating information. Um, here we can see a graph of the number of prescriptions that were written, and those are in blue, and then the people who actually use those prescriptions to hasten their death, and those are in green. And so we can see that over the years, those numbers have increased somewhat, although have sort of stabilized over the last couple of years. And I think the most striking thing to me is that these are pretty small numbers, right? So, um, so 71 people died in the entire state of Oregon in the calendar year 2013. This is, this is a small fraction of the people who die in this state. Um, the median age of people who died in Oregon as a result of using a lethal prescription in 2013 was 71, so these are older patients. The great majority were white, something on, on the order of 95%. Um, these patients were um, well-educated. More than half of these patients had at least a bachelor's degree. Many had uh, many higher degrees. And typical patients um, were cancer patients somewhere in the neighborhood of 60-65% this year, which is actually a little bit lower than in previous years. And an increasing number of patients who had what is described as a lower respiratory disease, which I think is probably COPD, but, um, but didn't specify in the reporting. 
the great majority died at home, somewhere like 95 to 97%, and um, about 90% were enrolled with hospice concurrently, which I think is, um, is really interesting when we consider the number of patients who die in New Hampshire while currently enrolled in hospice. The last number was somewhere around 40%, 42%, which is below the national average of a whopping 44%. So these are patients who are utilizing hospice at a much higher level than the general population. And this is actually felt by some to be um, what has been described to me as a silver lining of um, physician-assisted dying, is that in places where this is legal, hospice utilization has actually gone through the roof, um, which is sort of an interesting epiphenomenon, I think. Um, the great majority of patients who died after taking a lethal prescription had health insurance, um, although an increasing number of patients had Medicare or Medicaid only. And the greatest end-of-life concerns that were cited among, um, among these patients, now this is physician-reported, so this is our interpretation of why these patients were asking, but presumably there had been some discussion. Um, the concerns cited were loss of autonomy, decreased ability to participate in enjoyable activities, and a loss of dignity. And the prescribing physicians were present for eight of these deaths, which seems like a low number, but when I think of how many of our patients die with no physicians present, I think this probably is a higher number than average. So looking at some of the ripple effects of this, um, there was a really interesting study looking at family members of patients who died after um, taking a lethal prescription. You know, there are very well described effects of suicide on family members, and it's pretty clear that, um, that suicide is very detrimental to the mental health and well-being of family members. Um, and so they looked at this, and when they surveyed um, families of patients who had died after taking um, a lethal prescription versus patients who had died without, there was really no difference in mental health outcomes, so no difference in major depression, no difference in complex or prolonged grief. But actually, families of patients who took these prescriptions felt, on average, more prepared for the death. They felt more accepting of the death. And they were less likely to report having wanted more opportunities to care for their loved ones. So in some ways, families of patients who took these prescriptions did some better in the bereavement period. So um, moving one state to the north, Washington um, also legalized physician-assisted dying. Um, their statute is also called the Death of Dignity Act, and that was made legal in 2008. Um, so I think it's instructive to look at how this has actually been implemented at their major, um, their major medical center, which is University of Washington, the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center, which um, is the NCI center for um, the states of Washington, Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, and Alaska. So we think we have problems getting people here for appointments. I think um, it's pretty amazing to think of the, the range that they cover. And, and only Washington residents are, legal, or, um, are allowed to take advantage of this. But just to give you a sense of the size of this operation, this is a big center. So when this was made legal, they sort of sat down and formally put together um, a death with dignity policy. They made informational packets for physicians, patients, and the patient advocates, and we'll hear a little more about them. Um, included in that policy was the explicit policy that um, the Seattle Cancer Care Alliance does not accept new patients for the sole purpose of accessing death with dignity services. So if that is the reason for a patient to come, they're not going to see that person. Um, these people are referred to Compassion and Choices. Again, this is the nonprofit sort of advocacy group that helps patients sort of through this, this procedure. Um, we'll talk a little more about them. Um, they have a policy that there is no information posted on death with dignity in any public space um, related to the University of Washington. It's not on billboards. It's not online. It's not in their brochures. This is something that they want patients to come and ask sort of out of their own motivation, not because it's being advertised. Um, and they actually require participants to sign an agreement not to take the lethal prescription in a public area, which is, um, it sounds curious, but in the Washington statute, it's actually in the statute that it's recommended that people not take this in a public place. And the university has taken that one step further to actually require people to sign an agreement that they're not gonna do it. And I think that's probably related to the publicity PR angle. <clears throat> uh, 
um, as they were in the process of putting this all together, they surveyed um, 200 of their physicians. They got 81 responses, and out of that, 29 physicians were willing to act as a prescribing or a consulting physician, and that was really felt to be enough to, um, to be able to offer these services to all of their patients, and so they kind of rolled it out. So what this looks like is when a patient's referred to their Death with Dignity program, they are assigned a patient advocate who is one of the social workers at the cancer center. That um, patient advocate sits down with the patient, describes the process, describes all of the alternatives, including things like palliative care, making sure that they've seen palliative care if needed, talking with them about hospice, talking with them about other care options. The patient advocate does a chart review to confirm that the terminal prognosis has been, in fact, documented. And then, um, interestingly, the patient advocate acts as essentially a documentation um, checker for the physicians to prospectively make sure that everything that's supposed to be completed paperwork-wise is completed. There's a lot of reporting paperwork that needs to be filled out. And so the university has sort of handed that responsibility to these patient advocates, not necessarily on the physicians. Ultimately, it's the physician's job, but the, the social workers are helping them. The social worker patient advocate will determine if the attending is willing to act as a prescriber. And if they're not, then they help that patient to find somebody who is willing to act as a prescriber. They have a list. And so it's known within the institution who's willing to write these prescriptions. And so if that patient's attending is not willing, um, then the patient advocate finds someone who is. The patient advocate conducts a psychosocial assessment, and if there's evidence of a mental health concern, um, they basically make those referrals, and the psychiatry service and psychology service there is sort of well embedded in this process um, and sees these patients to be sure that there aren't any underlying mental health issues that need to be addressed. And the patient advocate also ensures that their pulse form is completed. Um, this is, um, for those who don't know pulse, it's, um, it's sort of the higher level, I guess you could say, advanced directive with just more detailed, um, specific instructions what to do when a patient is in fact dying. Um, the patient advocate gives patients and families advice on how to get this prescription, how to keep it safe, and then if the patient dies without using it, how to get rid of it which is one of those things we probably uh, should think about more often. The patient advocate um, assists with grief and legacy support, and so doing some work with patients before they've passed and families and then afterwards. And then if the patient actually uses this medication and dies from it, um, they make sure that the physician is notified and then there's paperwork to be completed, of course, and so assist with getting that, um, getting that completed. The prescriptions that are written are then filled at their retail pharmacy at the university. And so um, over the course of about three years, the Seattle Cancer Care Alliance dispensed lethal medication to 40 patients, which was about a third of the people who actually asked about it, and 24 of those patients then died after ingestion. This was 0.02% of the annual deaths of patients. So this is, again, a very small number of patients that we're talking about. Similar to Oregon, these patients are overwhelmingly white, college-educated men. Um, there were no reported um, unexpected complications, save for one case of prolonged dying, in which um, case the patient took about a day to actually pass. But most people die within five to 10 minutes of ingesting the medication. And similar to Oregon, the end-of-life concerns cited include loss of autonomy, inability to gauge, engage in enjoyable activities, and loss of dignity. And now, actually, palliative care consultations are offered to everyone who expresses interest in taking advantage of this, um, of this program. So let's look across the border. Vermont um, passed an act, this is called Act 39. Um, this is actually the first death, death with dignity or patient-assisted dying, uh, physician-assisted dying law that was passed as a result of going through the legislature. So in Washington and Oregon, these were ballot measures. In Vermont, this actually went through the legislature, and it's the first time that's happened. Um, and this applies to adult Vermont <coughs> residents who are suffering from illness with an estimated prognosis of six months or less who are capable of informed consent and who can self-administer the medication. So this is not someone whose family is going to mix it and then give it to them. These are people who have to take it on their own. And this statute is virtually identical to Oregon's statute. So they have to make an oral request of the physician, and then 15 days or more later have to make a second request. <coughs> they have to complete a written request that has to be witnessed by non-interested parties. They have to have a second opinion to confirm the diagnosis and prognosis and to evaluate their decision-making capacity. 
all of these restrictions actually go away in 2016. And so in 2016, there will be no more restrictions on the number of requests, how it's written out, the second opinion. It will just apply to anyone with a terminal prognosis who can take the medication and who has capacity. And that is different than any other place in the country. Um, this, the act states that patients have the right to be informed for all of the cares, uh, options for care and treatment, including palliative care and hospice. And physicians and RNs are not required to participate, but they have to make a referral or otherwise arrange for patients to get that information. And the only eligible physicians who, um, who can do this are people who hold a Vermont license and um, our um, advanced care nurses and PAs are excluded specifically in the language of the act. So how are they dealing with this at UVM? So um, Fletcher Allen has decided that this is legal, and so they are in the process of creating a framework to provide this care to their patients. And they're basing it pretty closely on the models that have been developed in Oregon and Washington. <clears throat> they're basically working on a standardized institutional, but also a community support <coughs> pathway. Of course, Vermont is very rural lots of community hospitals, and so they're thinking about ways to support community physicians um, who want to do this. Um, they really emphasize that physician-assisted dying is not an alternative to hospice and palliative medicine, and um, all interested patients are being referred to palliative care first. They are working closely with Compassion and Choices, who we've heard about. This is an organization that sort of rose from the ashes of the Hemlock Society and over a series of mergers and divisions um, has now, this is what they're called, and basically work to um, act as patient advocates. It's a very interesting website, actually. Um, they have end-of-life counselors who you can call and talk to about your end-of-life options in your state. Um, and so they actually now have a part-time medical director for the state of Vermont um, to sort of act as a shepherd for this process. Um, the palliative care section at Fletcher Allen has decided that they are not going to be prescribers, that they are going to make referrals, but they, in fact, will not be the ones to write these prescriptions themselves. And um, when I talked to their section chief a couple of weeks ago now, um, there had been three prescriptions that had actually been written, but no pharmacies would fill it. And so they are working on um, getting the Fletcher Allen retail pharmacy to be a resource for patients to actually fill the medication. So as best we know, um, nobody, at least from Fletcher Allen, has died as a result of taking this medication. And I don't know of any data about some of the community practices. So, um, so I'm wondering, um, for those of you who said yes, you have been asked for help, uh, I'm wondering sort of where your comfort level was in responding to those requests, because I've seen um, both in my training and, and now um, uh, on faculty a, a variety of responses. And so I'm wondering sort of how people felt in terms of their comfort um, to responding to these requests. So fairly evenly divided across the board. So this is really um, this is really interesting. We're going to talk a little bit about some strategies for responding to patient requests. Um, I think now that it's legal in Vermont, 40% of our patients come from Vermont, and I suspect that the numbers of us who get asked about this, it's probably going to rise. And so let's think about um, about how we can talk with these patients. There's a lot of ways you can respond, and I've seen everything from um, when I was a resident, I had uh, a patient ask my attending about it, and the attending said, well, we don't do that. <coughs> that was it. And um, I think it's really important to clarify what the patient's really asking for. Are they really asking for help with this? Is this sort of their way of reaching out to you to say, hey, I'm really miserable, and I need some help with this? I think the danger is just saying, well, I don't do that. I don't talk about that. We don't do that here, is you miss the opportunity to explore what's really going on with the patient and to really think about how do we help them, um, what are they suffering with. So clarifying what question is being asked. Are they asking for help right now? Are they asking about hypothetical help? What really are they getting at? I think it's important to, um, to express your support and commitment to the patient to say, you know, I'm not comfortable with this, but I hear that this is something that is really important to you that you're interested in. Let's think about how we can come up with a way to address your concerns. 
it's really important to evaluate, of course, their decision-making capacity. And if you have concerns about their capacity, um, then you need to ask for help if needed. Um, and that might be a referral to the psychiatry service. Um, if the, you fear that they have an untreated mental health disorder that they need help with, that you might need help with. Um, and certainly, if a patient, even with a terminal prognosis, is expressing, I really want to die, and here's how I'm going to do it. I'm, go I'm going to go home, and here's my plan. That's a patient that needs help right now, full stop. Um, thinking about exploring the patient's suffering. As I said, suffering is a really broad term, and it has a differential, just like anything else does. So this may include need for physician attention. This is, I need more from you. I'm really suffering, and I need you to help me. Do they have inadequately controlled physical symptoms? Is there an untreated psychological disorder? Are they afraid of suffering in the future? Is there something going on at home that's causing particular stress or dysfunction? Or is this just their sort of personal values, and I'm someone who needs to have control, and I have no control, and I don't know what to do about that? And then being unafraid to respond to their emotions. This is often the hardest part for us, and something I hear from residents when they rotate on our service. Um, it's really hard to respond to those emotions, but simple things like, I can see how hard this is for you. I hear how you're suffering. That just acknowledgement of a patient's emotional state, you don't have to cry with them, but it's okay to name what they're feeling, and I think that's a profound therapeutic um, moment for the patient and often for the physician as well. So you've gone through all of that, and the patient's like, no, really, I want to get this over with. Please help me to die sooner. So I would encourage you to seek out consultations or a second opinion. I think if the patient hasn't seen the palliative care service and has um, a serious life-limiting illness, send them to us. We'd be glad to take a look at them and see what we can help with. Think about what other possibilities there may be for um, shortening a person's life. Withdrawal of life-sustaining treatments, we think about things like withdrawing a ventilator, but does the person have a pacemaker we can turn off? Is this an end-stage hematological disease patient who is transfusion dependent and we can stop their transfusions? The patient can stop eating and drinking on their own. This is a tough one to actually achieve because you really have to stop everything and that's hard, but people do it and um, often don't live very long. Um, if the person has severe intractable physical symptoms that, um, that we've been unable to control in other ways, this is a very small proportion, but um, palliative sedation for relief of symptoms is an option. And then in places where it's legal, um, including now our neighboring state, physician-assisted dying may be something to consider if the physician feels it um, is appropriate. Um, you want to really document your decision-making process throughout all of this. I think it goes without saying, but document, document. And then really trying to balance the physician's sense of integrity with the sense of not abandoning the patient. So if this is something you just feel like you can't do, you can't really just say, I'm not going to do it. This is something I think you really need to address and find a, a physician, one of your colleagues, who can help this patient. So this is just a means of reflecting on our own personal feelings about this, because I think it's important to be aware of what our personal feelings are when our patients ask us. So this is not binding, <laughs> totally anonymous. If legality were not an issue, would you help someone in hastening their death? <clears throat> so I think I don't even need to comment. I think uh, it speaks for itself. It's really interesting. So I'm going to stop talking so we can have a little dis panel discussion. But I just want to say thank you to my section, who's been really supportive of me as I've been putting this together. Um, Dr. Ursula McVeigh, who's the Chief of Palliative Care at Fletcher Allen, and Art Higgins in risk management were also particularly helpful. Everybody knows Peggy and Tim are members of the Ethics Committee, and we really just wanted to have an opportunity to, to have some discussion, because I think this is a really um, fraught topic that people are interested in thinking more and talking about. And so I think this is an opportunity for those of us here to ask questions, 
Um, I don't think anybody should feel compelled to debate the morality or ethical um, implications, but this is really an opportunity to think about what does this mean for our physicians here? Um, lots of us take care of Vermont patients. Many of us have Vermont medical licenses, and is this something that we should offer? Is this something our institution should have a policy on? Um, I would welcome your questions or thoughts on the topic, Tom. I'm sitting in my clinic in New Hampshire. My Vermont patient asks me for this. They have a Vermont pharmacy. I write the prescription. Where have I acted? In a legal state? New Hampshire. So, so um, that's correct. Yeah, so the only people who can actually prescribe are physicians who are licensed in Vermont who are seeing a patient in the state of Vermont when they're practicing on their Vermont medical license and it's a Vermont resident. So if we're seeing a patient here on New Hampshire soil, even if you have a Vermont medical license, can't write the script. How about home visits? So maybe I'll defer to Ed, who's our uh, senior leadership representative. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Ed. <laughs> this is really important and a great topic, and it, it emphasizes the fact that we live on the fault lines of two states that have very different approaches to how we deliver health care. One's approaching you know, single-payer health care, the one has no-payer health care. And, uh, <laughs> uh, and I... We have, a, we, have an, we have a very robust palliative care service and, an, and, a, and a robust cancer service here. We have Maine, is Maine, Vermont, and New Hampshire in the top four oldest states in the United States, and we have the highest case mix index in New England here. So we have the, the substrate for, for these questions to arise. And a number of us have practiced, have licensure in, in other states, in, in, in Vermont, but I think what Meredith said is, is, is really true. Um, you, you may have a license, and if you're practicing in Vermont, you and you're seeing a Vermont patient, you can you have the ability to, to do this legally. Um, the reality is that we do not, as the supporting structure for where you're employed, have all the things that Meredith talked about in terms of what, what constitutes a robust program. If you look what Washington State has done, you know, in terms of involvement with social workers and, and other people that can do the psychiatric assessment, that can do the patient advocacy, that can be there and supportive. This is not just about, I'm traveling to Mexico, I need some Cipro. This is um, this is a whole comprehensive program that is supportive, and its its foundations are in palliative care, but they're also in the supporting structures. So I, I think that we all we've all gotten these questions, and it's evident here that this is a very involved group. But it doesn't doesn't mean we can do it because we we work for an organization that really, and, and we can certainly look into this and and, and do more work through ethics and, and palliative care. But it's not as simple as just writing the prescription. There needs to be the, the supporting structure that's there, and. You know, Vermont, and I'll just make one more comment. Vermont has made some measures in terms of opiate prescribing that are very different as well. When we those of us who have Vermont licenses, when we practice here at the at this campus, we're, we're, we're working under our New Hampshire license. It's different when we're in. So, does that clarify things a little bit? I think so. David, thanks for a really interesting talk. Washington that really thought this through and have a process and a multidisciplinary team. What is the standard of this type of care in terms of the drugs? But pushing that to the next step, we all know that there's patient-to-patient -patient variability. What is the variability in patient response to the drugs where someone thinks they're taking a fatal dose, but maybe they're not taking a fatal dose? Yeah, so um, I think it goes without saying this is an off-label use of this particular medication for CME purposes, um, but the recommendation is barbiturates, um, and there's a practice guideline that's been developed by Compassion and Choices that recommends um, nine grams of pentobarbital or cecobarbital, depending on what's available. And um, most guidelines recommend you give a patient an antiemetic, um, and then an hour later, they will ingest what they recommend doing is, is um, either crushing the pills or opening the capsules to make sort of a slurry that can be consumed. They recommend it be consumed within about five minutes because if you take longer, you fall asleep before you finish the dose. 
And um, the variability is actually quite low when um, it's reported out in the Oregon data how long patients take to die. And um, it's, there's not a lot of variability. Most patients were in the five to 10 minute range. Some people um, survived a few hours. And then as I mentioned, there's one in the Washington study that, that survived a day. There have been a couple patients who have survived altogether. <coughs> Um, but pretty few and far between. So overwhelmingly, this is an effective dose for the huge majority of people who take it and very, very few associated complications. Oh, that was really an excellent uh, presentation. The last time this was discussed, it was probably <coughs> 10 years ago, and the speaker then emphasized that uh, one of the problems was that this should be done by someone who knew the patient really well and had a long-term relationship. And the way you've been discussing this, it almost sounds like a consultative service. Obviously, a lot of us, well, for example, the only time I ever get asked about this is someone sort of chosen me to be the person if it comes up. But you know, I never do this, so this would be quite a, so I'm just curious about how you see a consultant working with a primary care doctor or a long-term physician, because that's probably going to be the model that most likely will occur. Yeah, so in, um, in Oregon, most of the prescriptions are written by primary care physicians or by the physician that has the primary relationship with the patient. So oncologists um, are, are often um, the prescribers as well. Um, you know, at Fletcher Allen, they've decided the palliative care service is not going to write these prescriptions, that these need to come from the patient's primary physicians who've been caring for that disease and that palliative care is a co consultative service just as you've identified. But I think it is important, um, you know, in all of these statutes, the physician who writes a prescription is supposed to have a long-standing relationship with this patient. This is not someone who's supposed to just sort of drop in, write a script, and you know, the way would, we would refill someone's blood pressure medicine when we're covering in clinic, right? Um, so the idea is that these are supposed to be people who have a long-standing relationship. And I don't know if maybe you want to think about some of the ethical questions about consults and, and you know, what our responsibilities are as attending physicians. Um, but that's the idea, is that it's supposed to be the primary person. You know, I think one objection <clears throat> that uh, opponents of physician-assisted dying will raise is the idea that there's sort of a provider-patient contract that's endangered by that, that our intention is to heal and to promote longevity and not not death. That would be one um, argument. And uh, I think we could sort of mix those two together and sort of say, well, you know, if you, if you have a much more intimate relationship with that person, do you have more of a requirement to act in, in, you know, in those interests? Um, might you be tempted more to not do so if you have less of a bond? Uh, for me, I actually sort of move that aside and say that you know, whoever you are, you are acting for the patient and, and, and you are obligated to do everything you can for that person in that moment, consultative or otherwise. And, and so really the question of whether it's okay to do, I think is sort of um, separate from that. I wonder if maybe I could ask Peggy a, a question. Um, I think one common um, worry that people uh, raise about this is the possibility that a vulnerable population could be uh, unduly affected by this, that this might be, as Meredith said, the, the slippery slope for patients with disabilities, or I think the most commonly raised one is, is, is patients with mental health uh, uh, problems. And I wonder if you could sort of comment on, you know, is the presence of a mental health diagnosis an absolute contraindication to this? What, what prevention, you know, uh, should we have against those, uh, those risks? I think that's a very good point, and I know um, a couple people in my in the Department of Psychiatry here have raised that concern, as well as their ability to evaluate somebody that they're seeing on a consultation to determine whether their depression is sufficient enough to render them incapacitated to make this decision, which is probably the biggest issue people will be asking. Um, if people have some developmental issues or if they have dementia, that's a whole different deal in terms of this. But I think the biggest issue people will worry about is people who have disordered 
impaired thinking due to psychiatric illness. And um, again, if you don't have a long-term relationship with that person, sometimes that is, you know, the bar kind of is a movable bar as to when you say that should decide that the person can or cannot make a decision uh, to this level. And I know on the ethics committee, we have only had over the years that I can remember a couple cases in psychiatry where it's been determined that the patient's psychiatric illness was so impairing their process that they could not make decisions and came to ethics about making decisions for them. So I think that is a big issue. And I think it also looks to the issue that Meredith talked about in terms of people knowing the patient well enough to say whether that's impairing their judgment or not. Um, what, what I like about this at all is it's bringing out of the corners of the corridors where people are coming to me over the years with these conversations. I've had clinicians many times come to me with people who have asked um, about this and what do I do and how do I answer this and I'm freaked out and it's Friday afternoon at 5 o'clock and how do I deal with the weekend. So I think by having it overt and at least having the conversation is, is a great idea. I would build on that and say it's great that this is the topic for Medical Grand Rounds today. I wanted to briefly have you each answer a quick question about how we're introducing this as an education advisor for undergraduates, how we're dealing with it in an interdisciplinary learning environment and also in the community, and how we're dealing with the president and how staff training, not only in medicine but in other disciplines. So I guess we'll have to be brief because of time, but uh, how are we addressing that? Um, on the education side, I think one of the um, mistakes that's made in, in, in prior medical education about ethics has been that it's been sort of pie in the sky and, and oriented around principles and not practical and the, the, the kind of specific training and how to address the question regardless of what your stance is that Meredith uh, talked about is exactly the stuff that we're embedding in case-based teaching around ethics uh, in the medical school new curriculum assuming we survive the uh, assault. <laughs> um, I don't know that there's anything formal um, for the non-physician groups in terms of this. Uh, at this point, I will say in terms of community, I have done a few sessions for communities on advanced directives where this, in, in Hanover actually, and people obviously have traveled from Vermont and were asking the questions. So it's coming up and it is our obligation to have some kind of commentary about what to say to them. Uh, as far as the medicine house staff, I don't know that there's any that this is any um, formal topic within their um, within their education. You know, and they rotate with us. We often talk about sort of ethical principles. I can't think I've ever discussed this particular topic specifically, but as far as I know, I don't think this is something that's formally addressed in the the medical the house staff um, education experience. Bob, did you have something to comment? Um, you mentioned voluntary cessation of eating and drinking, which has actually become a relatively popular um, approach in many places, including at Kendall. Um, and you also mentioned our patients expecting that we have expertise in, in symptom management. Um, it turns out that that technique depends a lot on support for oral care. Um, I was wondering if you could comment on um, how, in addition to learning about physician-assisted dying, we might learn about symptom management for patients who choose voluntary cessation of eating and drinking. I think that's a really good point. Um, I think there's a lot of ways we could think about that. Um, I, I think it would be a worthy topic to explore further in in, uh, in other discussions. But you know, maybe it's worth thinking about a workshop or something locally um, as a resource for physicians um, on both sides of the border. And maybe that's a topic to include. I will tell you, I, I certainly know, and um, not just Kendall, but from other institutions where um, patients have or families have desired to um, acknowledge the patient's previously expressed wishes, the patient is now no longer able to express those wishes. And so the family is um, requesting some support in helping the person to stop um, oral nutrition or whatever. So I think that will be another question on this line uh, in those situations where somebody has requested this many years ago or many months ago, and now the family is trying to honor those wishes. We're going to have time for only a couple of other brief questions. I know Dan had a question, and there's one from the back of the room as well. So um, that was excellent, and I really enjoyed it. 
Um, I just uh, have one question, and that is, um, I answered no to that question, the last question, but I answered no, not not from a moral standpoint, but actually from a competence standpoint. Mm -hmm. I don't actually feel confident to make that decision, especially with regard to, to potentially reversible psychiatric disorders. And I was wondering if the Oregon or Washington experience requires some kind of training and whether there is a, a requirement for a second opinion with regard to um, there's no requirement for training as far as I have been able to tell. Um, and there is at least in Oregon and I think in Washington as well a requirement for a second opinion and the Vermont statute also mandates a second opinion at least temporarily until 2016 when essentially all those restrictions sunset. But for right now, yes. Your question. What about the, because physician assisted dying is conflicting with faith spirituality or religious beliefs. What about the family, patient, or about the physicians? Though would do not like to do that. They're spiritually, emotionally, what they will go through, same with the family and the doctors and physicians. I think this is a great question, and maybe I can and, and start off at least. Um, you know, I think what's really clear is that there is no consensus about the right way forward. It's still controversial, and there are people at either side of the spectrum. And what every state and country who's enacted legislation on this has done has uh, given uh, a way out for practitioners who aren't comfortable with this, so that they would not feel compelled to to do something that was, you know, against their their faith or their morals. Similarly, I think that it, you know, were I considering this question, if I saw huge family strife over the issue, I think that's not an absolute contraindication going forward because it's the, the individual patient's autonomy uh, would trump that, but it would certainly would be a red flag and something to make you put the brakes on and really explore what's going on there so you didn't accidentally do something that was against that patient's long-term wishes. Well, I think this could be the subject for an all-day discussion, and I would look forward to that, really. But I want to thank our panelists, and especially Meredith, for your presentation today. Thank you.